You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Our culture is awash in stars. And it is here, right now, at the 86th Annual Academy Awards, where the stars are working the carpet like it is fashion week. We're obsessed with stars, but perhaps not the most interesting ones. Instead of the red carpet, think red dwarf. Instead of persona, think corona. Instead of autograph, think spectrograph. Stars on the sky do more than just twinkle and create vague periodolic outlines of animals and Greek heroes. These burning balls of plasma can teach us about some truly compelling cosmic phenomena. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, where we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology. And for this particular wide-angle view, it might help to don UV glasses. Yes, the star is the star of this show. So here is your show of the star. What is a star? Well, in simplest terms, it's a condensed ball of gas. So when I met the Prime Minister of India after winning my Pulitzer Prize, but before my second Nobel, I said to him, Narendra, you simply must try my curried lamb. It's better than anything your country has produced in the last century. And then the royal fusiliers serenaded us as we boarded his pontoon. And this first but celestial gas balls eventually collapse under their own weight. And that crushes their innards, the pressure builds up, it heats up, and lo and behold, you get nuclear reactions. That's right. The insides of stars, they're just continually exploding hydrogen bombs, fusion reactors. That's what makes stars shine. And stars have life cycles. They begin as a nebula of dust and gas. They heat up to become stars, and then they die, sometimes violently, in a supernova explosion. In between birth and death, they might be red or white dwarfs, red or blue giants, or docile yellow stars like our sun. Bigger stars give off more blue light, they're hotter. Cooler stars emit more red light, but all give off visible, infrared, all kinds of light. And what we know about stars is largely learned by studying that light, but sometimes it plays tricks, and the following is a story of just that. Let's go back to the year 2010 and the discovery of planet Gliese 581g. Big news. Gliese of 581g was not just another exoplanet, a, a world around another star, not the sun. It was roughly the same size as the Earth. And in addition, it could have temperatures on its surface that are not too hot and not too cold. It was possibly a habitable world. I'm Gliese of 581g. Yep, I'm a planet. I orbit a red dwarf 20 light years from Earth that's also named Gliese 581. Isn't that weird? Planet and star of the same name. Well, except for the G part. <laughs> anyway, you can see I exist because I cause my star to wobble. Some say it's dangerous to orbit a fiery object, but I practice safety measures specified by OSHA, the Orbiting Space Habitats Around Stars Agency. I keep my distance. The discovery sent chills up the collective spines of astrobiologists. This world seemed to orbit in the habitable zone of its parent star. And so there might be liquid water sloshing over its surface. This was like drawing a full house for those looking for alien life. I say was because a new result has rained on 581G's parade. Unfortunately, I've done some analysis of the star, and I think that while the signal that the original discoverers claimed was real, it was not coming from a planet, but the star itself. 
astronomer Paul Robertson and his team at Penn State's Center for Exoplanets and Habitable Worlds now say that the planet Gliese 581g doesn't exist. They did what scientists do and tried to verify the original discovery, and they found that the signal that suggested a planet, the wobble of its star, was actually an illusion caused by the star Gliese 581 itself. That's right. I'm a star, and not a planet like I said I was earlier. (laughs) I fooled you all by blocking light with my sunspots and creating the illusion of a wobbling star. Simple stuff, actually, if you knew about the storms on my surface. You had stars in your eyes believing I was a planet, when in reality, there was nothing in your eyes but starlight. (laughs) Okay, so how did the star, Gliese 581, fool astronomers into thinking it was the planet, Gliese 581g? Well, because of the method used to find the planet in the first place. It's nearly impossible to see planets around other stars. The stars are so bright they blind our telescopes and the faint planets are lost in the glare. But there is an indirect method. Look for the wobble of the star caused when it dances with an orbiting planet. And in this case, the technique being used is called the Doppler method, where we look for the star itself to sort of wobble back and forth as the gravity of the planet's orbiting tug on it. Okay, so you do that by using an ordinary telescope. You you look at, I don't know, the light coming from this star system, and you just, you don't see the planet. You just see the wobbling star. That's right. So we use what's called a spectrograph, which is something you attach to the telescope, and it separates the starlight into the various colors, the rainbow of the star. And if the star wobbles because of some planet or planets, then the colors, the the lines in that rainbow from the star shift very slightly back and forth as the star moves. Okay, but you're not disputing that uh, the spectrum was shifting back and forth, are you? No, we, we completely agree with that assessment. But unfortunately, stars are not perfect little light bulbs. They have their own behavior. We see that with the sun in the form of sunspots and the 11-year solar activity cycle. And that happens for all the stars out there. And unfortunately, under, under certain circumstances, those magnetic phenomena can mimic the signals of exoplanets. And that's what happened in the case of Gliese 581. Well, tell me, what kind of star is Gliese 581? I mean, is it a star like the sun? It's not. Gliese 581 is what we in astronomy call an M dwarf or is more commonly referred to as a red dwarf. It's about a third the mass of the sun and also about a third of its radius. And so it's a much smaller, cooler star. And to your eye, it would look quite a bit redder. Okay, so it's a it's a kind of a runty little star, but on the other hand, there's no reason why it couldn't have planets, except that uh, these M-dwarfs, I believe, are, well, they have a bit of a reputation for being uh, kind of stormy, sort of unstable. They, they have things going on on their surface that you don't expect from a star like the sun. Right. They can be quite active, especially in the first billion years or so of their lifetimes. And that's certainly a consideration that has been examined in terms of can these planets around M-stars truly be habitable? And, and that's a bit out of my expertise, but it is an area of ongoing research. So how did the activity of this star, Gliese 581, because that's the star, 581G is this putative planet, how did the activity on its surface, boiling storms, whatever it was, how did that mimic the you know, shift in the spectral lines to make it look like that star was wobbling? How does it do that? The star itself, like any star, including the sun, is rotating. And so any kind of motion towards or away from an observer produces a a Doppler shift. You observe this in your daily life if you hear a a siren screaming down the street and it changes pitch. So if you look at a rotating star in the sky, half of the star approximately will be rotating toward you and it will be blue shifted slightly. And the other half will be rotating away from you and it will be slightly red shifted. And so if you have some small feature on the surface of the star, like you would see a sunspot, so let's call it a star spot, a rotating star spot will cover up part of the red or blue shifted light and create a Doppler shift, which is exactly the signal that we look for in in an exoplanet. So 
basically it, it's difficult to determine the origin of a Doppler shift without some sort of additional outside information and so it's easy to confuse a stellar magnetic signal as that of a planet. So it was kind of a mirage, a real trick of the eye or at least a trick of the telescope but nothing's there. This 581G planet that uh, got all this publicity in 2010 has uh, vaporized. Or perhaps more correctly, it was never there. And, and unfortunately, its neighbor planet, Gliese 581d, we found was also a byproduct of stellar activity. So both of the planets in the Gliese 581 system that were considered to be potentially habitable unfortunately don't exist. Well, that's got to be a bit of a bummer because we found, uh, you know, close to 2,000 planets around other stars, but very few of them look like the kind of planets where you might expect a little bit of biology, and these guys were in the list. Uh, you know, given that this is a technique that we've used for finding other planets, you know, should we be worried about this result that maybe uh, many of the planets that we think are looking good are maybe not there either? I don't think we should be terribly concerned. You have to keep in mind that these two planets are among the least massive planets ever discovered by this technique. And the magnitude of those signals are right at the threshold where signals from the star become really important. And so while I think that it's going to be very important going forward as our technology allows us to look for these smaller and smaller planets, uh, it's going to be extremely important to make sure we don't get fooled by stellar signals. But I think the vast majority of the, the planets in the catalog so far are going to turn out to be real, even after additional scrutiny. You know, Paul, we naively think of stars as being, you know, these, these shining orbs that don't really change very much. I go out and look at the sun this afternoon, it looks pretty much the way it looked uh, last week in the afternoon. But, you know, stars have their own lives and uh, those can throw monkey wrenches into our discoveries. That's right, and we're becoming more and more aware of the sun's own activity. You know, we have to be concerned about whether a solar flare is going to present danger to our astronauts in the space station or, or knock out our cell phone lines. And we have to keep in mind that this happens all the time on other stars. They have their own spots and activity cycles and flares and everything else. And, and all of that can creep into our data. And we have to make sure that we're aware of that when we're painting the, the physical picture of the star and its planetary system. Well, any idea how the discoverers of Gliese uh, 581G have reacted to this? I mean, do they agree that uh, it was a false positive? Unfortunately, I have not had the opportunity to speak with them about Gliese 581G, and so far they have not uh, made any public pronouncements one way or the other. So uh, the Gliese 581 system is one that has been subject to intense scrutiny and at times uh, intense debate. And so I, I don't think that my results are going to change that completely, but I hope that it will paint a more complete picture of our observations of the system thus far. Paul Robertson, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Paul Robertson is a postdoc fellow at Penn State Center for Exoplanets and Habitable Worlds. Well, obviously, it's disappointing to those who had found 581G, but, you know, this is the way science works. You come up with a new discovery, what sounds like an important discovery, and immediately 10 other teams of scientists go into the lab or to the telescope and try and see if you're right. And that's exactly how science works. So sometimes it's three steps forward and two back, but generally we're moving in the right direction. The star Gliese 581 fooled us, but other stars are not so devious. We found thousands of extrasolar planets by studying the wobbles of stars. And then there are the stars that have revealed some of the stranger objects in the universe. Everyone's favorite time suck, black holes, next. Hey, we're doing a stellar job on Big Picture Science. 
So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, Mm -hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe maybe laughing or just groaning (laughs) at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. If we were to film a space opera about cosmic phenomena, of course, that would have to be produced at Universal Studios, and this were central casting, well, black holes would always be typecast as the villain. Invisible, mysterious objects, these monsters are one-way trap doors that can devour all that dare to come near. Stars, gas, dust, even spaceships. There is an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space converge. A place beyond man's vision, but not his reach. It is the most mysterious and awesome point in the universe. Now... Gravity's at maximum, Dan. Oh my God, I think it's got us. Man is about to enter. We got a break here, too. The Black Hole. But to state the obvious, that's Hollywood. It's great fodder for science fiction, says Mike Joner, an astronomer at Brigham Young University. But real black holes are not cosmic vacuum cleaners. And we know that from the physics. Remember, black holes were discovered by theoreticians on blackboards. They weren't found by an astronomer with a telescope. We don't know for sure that they exist, but we have a really good idea that things like black holes are existing in the universe. For example... We do observe with our telescopes stuff like stars that fall into them. Theoretical physicists predicted that you'd get a black hole when at the end of its life, a star collapses under the weight of its own gravity, squashing everything to a point in space so small, so tiny, we can't say how small, except that it's smaller than a grapefruit, a pea, even an atom. And although a black hole is invisible, its gravitational tug is so huge, it even prevents light from escaping but we can still find it by looking for the disturbance it causes on the objects around it. Where's that light switch? Ow! I can't see it. Oh, shoot. What was that? Sorry. And that disturbance includes the erratic behavior of stars. Astronomers can use infrared light to cut through the dust and the gas in our Milky Way to observe the stars that are otherwise blocked from view. And that's why they're convinced that lurking in the center of our own galaxy is a massive black hole. At the center of our galaxy, we have very strong evidence from orbits of of stars that are moving around a point in space, which we know from physical reasons are the focus of that orbit, that there has to be a lot of mass in that place, but it's not giving off any light. So that's really good evidence that there's a black hole there. So so what you're saying is that uh, we've been able to sort of measure the dance of stars right in the center of the Milky Way, and they're dancing around a partner that uh, produces no light. Absolutely. Every once in a while, we might see a little bit of flare at some wavelength in the spectrum that lets us know that there really is something there, but otherwise it looks like an empty point in space that has a whole lot of mass associated with it. So this black hole that's hunkered down in the center of the Milky Way, any idea how big it is? I mean, you know, how much stuff is in there? Um, Yeah, we can look at the orbits of the stars, the way they're dancing around that black hole, and through a little bit of calculation with uh, principles of physics, we determine that the size of that black hole is several million times the mass of our sun. So... This massive black hole sitting in the center of the galaxy. Now, a lot of people, when they hear the term black hole, they figure black holes are kind of malevolent things that might, you know, I don't know, suck up the earth or something like that. What do black holes really do? 
black holes affect the space around them gravitationally. But other than that, it's very unlike what you may have seen in movies in the past. Uh, that's really not good science fiction when you see black holes swallowing planets and solar systems and sucking up galaxies. Uh, it really doesn't happen that way. If you have a, a black hole that's the mass of our sun, for example, uh, the planets in the solar system, they're far enough away from that that there really are no effects from the black hole other than its gravity. And so they would feel the gravitational pull of a, a solar mass-sized object, and they would continue to orbit just happy as can be, just like the sun was there. The only difference is we wouldn't have any life because there'd be no more light coming from that black hole. Okay, but if we were to somehow turn the Earth into a black hole, I think you have to get it down to more or less the size of a marble or something before it turns into a black hole. But the moon wouldn't care. It would just keep orbiting around this marble. That's correct. All right. So this big black hole, are there any black holes actually that are closer to us than this big one in the center of our galaxy? Um, yeah, there, there are some black holes scattered around throughout our galaxy. They're the products of, of stars that have been born really, really large, undergone a supernova explosion, and, and have collapsed uh, even beyond the, the realm of what we call neutron stars to where they are themselves black holes. And we occasionally see one of these objects by how it affects a nearby companion star, for example. We can look at the companion star and see otherwise normal star, but it also has the, the signature of some high energy event like x-rays coming from it, and that tells us that there's something else going on other than just a normal star. Well, is that encouraging? I mean, to think that there might be some of these smaller black holes nearby, relatively nearby, maybe 100, 1,000 light years away. Could we in the future conceivably go to a black hole like that and somehow arrange to throw somebody into it and have them come out in some other universe or at some other time? Um, you could conceivably do that. It's uh, way beyond our technology currently. But and there's been a lot of discussion about whether black holes can be used as, as portals to a, another part of the universe. Um, current calculations tend to show that they're not really stable over long periods, and so it's probably a door that actually leads to nowhere. So uh, you shouldn't be the first to volunteer for this. Uh, and, and even if it worked, uh, how would you ever know? You, you, you can't call back, can you? Nope, you're, you're going to be somewhere a long ways away if it did work, and I'll let you try it first, Seth. <laughs> Mike Joner, thanks so much for uh, talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Mike Joner is an astronomer at Brigham Young University. He talks about using uh, black holes as wormholes. I think that that's their most popular use, at least in fiction. But, you know, he also indicated that maybe they don't work that way, and that would be a disappointment in a way. Even if we can't get to a black hole and drop ourselves in and hope to go somewhere else, it's certainly an appealing idea. Well, you talked earlier about black holes being discovered on blackboards. What do the blackboards say about the possibility of them being used as wormholes? Theoretically, is it possible? Yeah, well, it seems kind of ambiguous. If you talk to the people with the blackboards, what they'll tell you is, well, we're not quite sure because, you know, if you use this bit of math over here, it looks like it would if you fell into a black hole in such a way that you don't get ripped up because you gotta you gotta find a big black hole to do this. Otherwise, the small ones will just spaghettify you, right, and just you know pull your pull your atoms apart. To a long, long piece of spaghetti. Well, exactly, but without the meatballs. But if you find a big <laughs> black hole, you know, near the center of the galaxy, that's a big black hole, and you fall into that sort of crooked wise, well, then maybe you could come out in another time or in another part of the universe. But as I say, that's one set of equations, but. If they look at other more refined ideas, it may be that uh, that doesn't work. But you don't want to be necessarily in another part of the universe. What we want to do is time travel, don't we? Go well, back to another time on Earth. Well, I mean, that may be your personal preferences. But, <laughs> I mean, it might be very nice to be able to visit, you know, somebody else's star system or even somebody else's galaxy without having to spend billions of years in a rocket ship. So there is something to the travel part, too. So you talked about how black holes are made and even any any body of mass could 
could create a black hole, a planet, perhaps our own Earth, a sun, and so forth. Yes, that's right. People have the idea that black holes are some sort of exotic matter. You can only make a black hole out of, I don't know, this stuff in a giant star. But that's not true. If you take any bit of matter, I mean, you know, take my kid brother and you squeeze him down far enough, then it turns out that he's so so dense, right? He's so small, so dense that the gravity of his material there, it just pulls him down into something where there, there, there are no more forces to stop the, the ultimate collapse of my brother into a black hole. Now, that would be a really small black hole, but it would be a black hole. I think you just handed babysitters all over the world a new tool for quieting down kids. If you don't quiet down, if you don't settle down... I'm going to squeeze you into a black hole. I, I don't know if most kids would find that to be a threat. They'd probably find it exciting yep. to be turned into a black hole. You're right. It might just have the opposite effect. But there's no doubt that stellar black holes, black holes made not out of kid brothers or even the kind of black holes that we find in the centers of galaxies, ones that are the result of a big star that died, those are probably the most common black holes in the universe. In fact, it's been said that maybe 10% of all the uh, stars in our galaxy are actually black holes because there's been plenty of time for big stars to turn into black holes. But whether your black hole is made out of a star planet or your kid brother, it is the other stars around it, rotating around it, that reveal its hiding place. It, that's the way you find them. There are really only two ways to find a black hole. One is if stuff is falling into it, if it's still eating nearby gas, for example, then that produces a lot of heat, produces x-rays that you can see with the right kind of telescope and so forth. That's one way. The other way is what Mike Joner was talking about, where we look in the center of our galaxy with infrared telescopes, and we see all these stars, you know, zipping around like, like you know, angry bees in a hive. And you say, what, what's causing them to move so fast? And the only thing is, there's got to be a lot of mass down there. There's no light coming from it. Black hole. Well, maybe if you squash those bees down, you'd have tiny, tiny little black holes. Well, where to next? Well, why don't we travel from the center of our galaxy in that big black hole 26,000 light years out and land on Earth? And we could alight at a place that's still relatively exotic, the top of Lincancaber volcano on the border of Chile and Bolivia. Altitude, nearly 20,000 feet. It's there that scientists mounted equipment to monitor the behavior of our own star, the Sun. This was part of an investigation into Mars-like environments on Earth in preparation for the Curiosity rover mission. The top of this volcano gets a high dose of ultraviolet radiation, and in that respect, it's a bit like Mars. But how much ultraviolet? Well, scientists were absolutely stunned. Writing in the journal Frontiers in Environmental Science, they claim to have measured the highest levels of ultraviolet ever recorded on Earth. The question then for planetary scientist Natalie Cabral and her U.S.-German team was, what caused this extraordinarily intense ultraviolet? Was it weird weather, a storm on the sun, or were humans to blame? But to understand why these levels of ultraviolet are worrisome, we need to understand just what UV is. When you are out in the sun, uh, you don't realize, but uh, you have different types of lights uh, reaching you, and uh, one of them is really good for plants. And uh, that's uh, the wavelength of light that does photosynthesis. This is why your plants are green. And then you have other types of light, which are shorter wavelengths, and uh, they are what we call UVA and UVB. And these shorter wavelengths are nastier to life. And to some extent, they can be dangerous. So UV, that stands for? Ultraviolet. Okay, so they're, they're shorter wavelength than violet light, which is at the end of the rainbow. They're, yes. they're beyond that. If, if you had the right kind of eyes, you could see this light in the rainbow? Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe Superman eyes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, everybody knows that the sun is essential to life, not to mention being useful for getting an attractive tan. But what about this ultraviolet light? Why, why should we worry about ultraviolet light? Why is it any different than, you know, red, green, yellow, blue, whatever? Yeah, the uh, UV, ultraviolet light, uh, can be really damaging. In, in fact, uh, studies have shown that it can do damage to the DNA, which is basically the fabric, what you have, you know, uh, your information that you're carrying, your code for a, a living organisms. And this can create mutations. Even for humans? I mean, if I go out there uh, in the sun and I get too much ultraviolet, would it cause mutations that, you know, could, could really damage me? Well, you know, first, there is not anything like, such like a uh, healthy tan. Every time you are getting tan means that your body is reacting to something. 
and you are creating melanin. And so there is nothing like a healthy town. But uh, that depends also on how much time you stay out, for instance, how much of this light you are integrating in your body. So if you're not staying very long, of course not. You are not going to be uh, in danger of anything. But this, this is an accumulation. Okay, but everybody knows that the sun can tan you. So in some sense, everybody knows that there must be something like ultraviolet light hitting us. But you measured something different about this ultraviolet light. Tell me what the result was. Absolutely. What is new is really the amount of UV that we measured. So uh, what we did measure is, in fact, you have a scale to uh, show people how much is too much when you're exposed to the sun. A UV index, which is that measure of the light that you are receiving, a UV index of 11 is extreme. It's considered extreme. So if you are in the U.S. on a beach during summer, you will have a UV index in general around 8 or 9, which is pretty high already. And when you are going to altitude, naturally, and this is not related to climate change, just naturally because you are going up uh, at altitude, the ozone layer that is uh, protecting us from those nasty rays is getting thinner. In some places around the Earth, at the tropics or at the equator, the sun is really high. So you combine the altitude and the latitude, and all of a sudden you have a natural setting that is really favorable to lots of UV. A UV index of 11 is considered extreme. There, at the peak of those events we measured, the UV was 43 which is nothing like was ever measured before. The previous record was 26. Uh, what that says is that those areas need absolute monitoring and warning systems because although they are not densely populated, you still have little cities and towns and people living there. So it's really important for us to have two things, a warning system, a monitoring system, and also understand what's going on. Is this a rare phenomenon? Or is this something that is going to happen more commonly? An obvious question is why the ultraviolet flux was so high. What was doing that? Is, is this another consequence of climate change, or do you really know? First, the relationship to climate change is not completely direct. There are a number of natural factors right there. The fact that you are at high altitude, at low latitude, in a very dry atmosphere, Right there, this is a natural setting. Ozone will be depleted, you will have plenty of sun, so we know that. Now, what was not natural there was the abundance of fires in the Amazon forest um, nearby. And, and so fires are shooting chemical that breaks down the ozone layer in the atmosphere. So this is a human impact right there. The second thing that, in fact, is natural is that you do have a, seasons of, a season of storm in this area, and this is in summer, and you have lots of atmospheric instability. The relationship to climate change here is that climate change is changing the patterns of El Nino and La Nina and also the rich and abundance uh, of these air masses that are loaded with electricity and, uh, and, and moisture. And then there is uh, the wild card, and the wild card was the most massive solar flare that was measured at the surface of the Earth just two weeks prior to the deployment of our instruments. And so coincidences are always interesting in science, but the duration of this overall instability and the highest measurement we've made coincides with the duration of the maximum solar activity. So there's at least a chance that this was caused by a solar flare, a storm on the sun. The sun giveth and taketh away, in a, in a way. Yeah, it, it, to some extent, I, I'm not sure about uh, using the, you know, the word caused, because it might just have been a factor that worsened a situation that was really bad to start with. Did anybody study the effects on the peoples that live nearby? I mean, was there any documentation that, you know, they were they were getting burned up? Well, you know. Um, Overall, just because of climate change and ozone thinning over the years, there have been a number of studies, especially from the International Panel of Climate Change, that show the negative impact of UV on people. The first thing you will have at this level, and you don't need to reach a UV index of 43 for that, is an increased number of cataracts or skin cancers. 
And usually those people will be naturally, or they think they are naturally protected because they have darker skin in general. And they tend not to wear sunglasses. So you would see a higher level of cataracts in these people. So those studies exist. But what we are seeing here is different. I mean, at the UBI 26, you shouldn't be out anyway. And you should wait because usually those events don't last very long. It's a matter of a few tens of minutes or a few hours. So if you can stay inside, if you get outside, apply, you know, strong sunblock, reapply very often, wear your sunglasses, and get as much of your body covered. You study Mars. That's your research interest, Natalie. But how did you come to study the ultraviolet flux on the top of a mountain? Why were you doing that? Well, you know, it's just because I am a planetary scientist. I'm looking for analogs uh, because I cannot go to Mars right now. There is no rocket that's going to take me to Mars right now. So I, I have to go to the places that look the most like Mars in the past, and this is what I'm studying. The reason where we were there was because we wanted to understand the physical environment of some lakes on Mars very, very early, close to 4 billion years in the past. And uh, we realized by uh, going up high in the mountain, you were going back in time on Mars. Basically, you are getting into cold temperature, thin atmosphere. We were in a volcanic environment, and we had lakes. And the reason why I was doing this is because I was a member of the Mars Exploration Rover team, and we were going to explore a site that was uh, supposed to be an ancient lake over there. We wanted to understand what we were going to see. Finally, Natalie, most people think of the sun as a life giver even as a god, if you were an ancient Egyptian, Ra, and all that. But I get the distinct impression that the sun doesn't care about life one way or the other. The sun does what the sun has to do, which is, you know, radiate a lot of energy. It gives and it takes, and that's the overall cycle of life, you know, life and death. And, and we are supposed to be a smart species, and we should be smart in two ways knowing that this kind of thing can happen, and so we have to protect ourselves and having monitoring systems and understand what causes those events. And the second one would be not to make them worse by having activities that are going to generate more chemicals that are going to destroy the ozone layer. Because uh, at that point, what we sow, and that might be tied for most part to natural factors in uh, this region of the world, might just well happen in other places, in other latitude, if the ozone layer was going to be destroyed. Natalie Cabral, thanks so very much for talking with us. My pleasure. Natalie Cabral is a planetary scientist at the SETI Institute. Next, using stars for transportation and communication, from seafaring sailors to space-signaling aliens. It's a stellar job on Big Picture Science. Investing in the stock market? In real estate? How about in relationships? Are you earning and investing in your life? I'm Doc G, semi-retired hospice physician and host of the Earn and Invest podcast, where we have the 201 or next-level conversations about money and life. Not only how you make money and grow it, but also how you use your wealth to create a better and more fulfilling existence. Join us every Monday and Thursday wherever you listen to fine podcasts. For sure, stars can clue us into new astronomical phenomena, and that's intellectually interesting. But we've had a mighty important practical use for these gaseous fireballs for a very long time. And I don't mean romantic evening walks, as nice as they may be. The stars told us where we are. And how to get where we're going. It's pretty straightforward. So, Bob, uh, just hang a left at the second star in the knee of that hunter guy with the shield, and then a right before the flying horse. Well, it's not that straightforward. After all, the stars parade across the sky as the Earth turns. So, depending on when you look at them, making a left might not be right. But yet, the Polynesian sailors hundreds of years ago, they were able to cross thousands of miles of empty Pacific Ocean and find their way to distant lands. So how did they do that? Yeah, it's a remarkable achievement, that's for sure. You look at a map of the Pacific, and there are a few dots, you know, islands here and there. And they crossed all that in canoes, and they didn't have maps. So what they needed to do was have some sort of compass to know which way to go. They knew that an island was northeast of wherever they were, and, you know, they needed to know which way was northeast. 
But but couldn't they just use a compass? Well, they could have, but they didn't somehow use compasses. Compasses had been invented by the Chinese, I think it was in the 11th century. There were compasses in the world, but not in the canoes of the Polynesians. So what they did is they made a kind of a star compass. As we mentioned, stars, you know, have particular directions, but of course they move during the course of the night. So they would note where the stars were when they came over the horizon, when they rose and when they set. And that gave them the directions they needed. So they would get into their canoes and they would set sail, not seeing any land in front of them and eventually no land behind them. And they would watch the sky and the sky provided a kind of, not road map, but I guess watery map for them so they could make their way to these islands? Well, it wasn't really a map. They didn't have maps so much. So they didn't need to know where they were. That that would have helped them, of course, but that's a that's a hard problem. But they, they, in fact, solved the simpler problem of which way was which. And, of course, you always know which way is north if you, if you can see the North Star. But if you're in the South Pacific, you can't see the North Star. So they used other stars, and they knew that, you know, certain stars, have, when they came up on the horizon, were right to the east or somewhere a little bit to the left of the east, if you will, to the north of the east or south of the east, whatever, that sort of thing. So they navigated with a compass, which told them, go this way. And if they went long enough in that direction, they would trip across wherever they were intending to go. But that's assuming that they've made the voyage at least once. But there had to be a first time. There had to be a first time that you got into those boats and and you set off into the Pacific and you saw nothing on the horizon. Yeah, that's the wonder of it. But, of course, you never hear about those Polynesians who, <laughs> who didn't actually ever land anywhere and just disappeared into the ocean. And I'm sure there were a lot of them. But you're quite right. Somebody had to know that you needed to follow that star to go to that group of islands. And that would have been a trial and error thing. But, you know, whatever it was, they were able to colonize the entire Pacific in a very short period of time. So they obviously got very good at this. So they're in boats crossing thousands of miles of empty Pacific Ocean and probably doing so for weeks and weeks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, the stars can be points on a giant map, as we've heard, but maybe they can be more than that. Think of it. Ancient mariners had maps, but that's not all. Lighthouses told them that they were close to the shorelines on those maps. And some scientists think that certain types of stars could be terrific lighthouses, not to warn of dangerous shoals, but possibly useful for sending messages across space to other beings. In an intriguing paper, theoretical physicist Anthony Z and a colleague proposed that stars might be used by advanced civilizations as communication tools. It's a speculative idea, but hardly whimsical. A professor of physics at the Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics at the University of California, Santa Barbara, a graduate of Harvard and formerly at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study, Tony Z teaches quantum theory. He's co-authored scores of scientific publications on all manner of physics. So when he proposes a far-out idea, it may not be so far out. Tony, you have a scheme for signaling uh, aliens over enormous distances, and it doesn't use, you know, radio transmitters or pulsing lasers. How do you plan to do this? Well, if you are at a um, noisy dinner party, how would you communicate your signal to a friend across the table? You know, everybody talking very loudly. You would wink or blink at the other person, right? So think about winking or blinking. How would you... Uh, do that. Well, stars blink. There are stars that are periodic pulsing. They're known as variable stars. But of course, that doesn't convey any information if it's just constantly blinking like a uh, Christmas light. So what you have to do is you have to either change the phase. And what do we mean by phase? It means sometimes it, it blinks and it starts to blink again, and then it blinks a little bit later, and so on and so forth. So you change the timing of the blinks. But wait a minute, I can see how that might, you know, be a kind of, I don't know, Klingon Morse code. Right, right. But getting a star to blink according to uh, your plan, right? Uh, how, do you, how do you do that? That sounds kind of hard. Right, that sounds like totally crazy, right? Uh, a star is this huge thing. How, how do you uh, affect the behavior of the stars? Well, it turns out that these stars, they're actually known as Cepheid variables. They are on the brink of instability, like somebody about to have a heart attack. And so if we pump a little bit of energy into the star, it could actually cause the star to react. Now, where would this energy come from? Solar power. We all know about solar power. So 
in principle, we can collect the energy from the star itself and then pump it back in. And what we want to use is a beam of uh, neutrinos. They are particles that could penetrate, and they travel essentially at the speed of light. So your scheme here is that some advanced civilization, I, I don't imagine we're about to mm -hmm. do this sort of thing, but some really advanced society that wanted to get in touch with other societies or at least let them know right. that they're around right. would set up a big, I don't know, field of solar panels around some Cepheid variable star mm -hmm. and then use that energy to pump signals into the star, energy into the right. star that would cause the star to change its blinking pattern so that they could send uh, their poetry or whatever else to the rest of the nearby cosmos. Exactly. And the beauty of these, uh, these stars is that they are very bright and they could be seen even from the next galaxy over. They could be seen from very far away. And furthermore, Astronomers in our civilization have been monitoring them for many, many years, so we may even have the data. In other words, we may already have measured a artificially blinking star, and that information is sitting in our data archives in somebody's uh, desk. Exactly right, Seth. So it's a, maybe a question of analyzing the data in the right way. Now, I see the advantage, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that's what you say. These things are so bright. They're mm -hmm. so interesting mm -hmm. to astronomers anyhow mm -hmm. that any society that can afford to pay the salaries of some astronomers are going to know about these variable stars. So eventually they'll trip across the message, and it doesn't matter whether they're in the Andromeda galaxy or some other galaxy. They, they might still be able to find this message. Absolutely. That's the beauty of it. And the thing is... Everybody knows that in the real world, you know, systems are noisy. In, noise doesn't mean the, you know, the background noise. It just means, for example, if you turn on the television, there's going to be some snow if there's no signal. So there's going to be noise everywhere. So the data is going to be noisy. So the real problem right now is really for some clever young guy to think of a way of separating the signal from the noise. So the problem is this is a technical problem pawing through our own data to see if we've already heard ET and just haven't recognized right, it. Right, right. So this, of course, as we said in our paper, is a long shot. But on the other hand, if it really pans out, it would be unbelievable discovery. I see the advantage of this. Uh, Long-distance communication and uh, doesn't require complicated SETI experiments. Mm -hmm. It's just Klingons doing astronomy might, might find this signal or they may produce this signal. But on the other hand... You know, a pulsating star, a winking star, they might take days to wink once. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a bit rate even slower than the mm -hmm. dial-up modem I had 15 years yeah. ago. I mean, how much information can they send this way? That's a good point. You know, I think in many of the uh, writers about SETI searches have always assumed that a higher civilization would want to send us a massive amount of data. But maybe they, uh, they don't. I, I don't uh, it's not obvious that a massive amount of data would be required. They just perhaps wanted to indicate to us that they know about the, the basic physics of the world. And this could be summarized mathematically in a very short message. Maybe they would just tell you that this is where you ought to look with your radio telescopes to find you know, exactly. the, the, the wiki for the galaxy or something like that. So it's, it's kind of a beacon. It's, it's a, you know, like one of those uh, signs on the top of a restaurant that just says, eat and an arrow. And uh, <laughs> it's a pointer to where the real stuff is. That's a wonderful way of saying it. You know, it could be that they're transmitting the massive amount of data using electromagnetic waves. But this way, using a variable star is, as you said, it's like the eat here. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Uh, we're not in a position to build one of these, uh, if you will, star modulators. I don't know, use a technical term, but something right. that would allow us to tickle a star and get right. it to blink the way we right. want it to. How many more years would it be before we could do this, before we could actually send some robotic spacecraft to a nearby Cepheid variable and try and set up one of these transmitters? Well, it's, of course, uh, very difficult to predict about the future and how, how fast technology could advance. But uh, there's no laws of physics that would forbid this at this point. And it's just a matter of cost. Who knows, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years? I don't know. Well, all that's pretty short compared to the history of Homo sapiens. Absolutely. So it's certainly within the, the possibility. It's something that our race could dream on. Maybe not the individual in our race, but certainly the race as a whole could dream about. 
Well, Donnie Z, I got to say, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, particularly since uh, many years ago when I was an undergraduate. I sat behind you in sophomore physics class. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Seth. I think in a future uh, civilization, maybe medical advances would advance such into, to such a point that I grow an extra pair of eyes behind my head <laughs> so I could see who is sitting behind me. Tony Z is a theoretical physicist at the Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics at the University of California, Santa Barbara. We've heard a lot about stars, but then again, stars were the entire ball of wax when it came to astronomy. I mean, the word, astron, that's, you know, just Greek for star. And 2,000 years ago, all that there was in the sky were stars, planets, moon, and the sun, of course, basically stars. But if you get that ball of wax too close to stars, then you have a mess. Yeah, you can talk to Icarus about that. Now, of course, today we understand a lot about how stars work. That was a big problem for the 20th century. What makes a star shine? They figured it out, thermonuclear reactions. You know, the Victorians didn't know anything about that. That was figured out in the 20th century. But what's interesting and what we've heard a lot about is not about the stars themselves so much, but how they can be used to tell us other things. For example, the presence of black holes. Yes, yes, they're like little test particles that are, you know, are buzzing around a black hole, and they tell us, A, the black hole is there, and B, how much mass is in the black hole. So the stars are kind of irrelevant except as, you know, measuring sticks. But we can't always trust our eyes either. That's the story of Gliese 581G, which is now Gliese 581 without the G. There's no planet there, at least that's the latest analysis of the, those data. Yep, 581G, 581D, they seem to have gone away. But, you know, stars are a little complex in the sense that they do have storms and spots and things like that, and that's how we got fooled. But on the other hand, don't forget that all the planets that we've found beyond our own solar system were found because we were studying the stars, either how bright they were, if they got dim, if a star went in front of them, or how they wobble, not learning much about the stars, but using them again as some sort of test object to learn about other things. So stars are important to us as, as these test objects, as markers, as distance indicator. The kind of star that Tony Z was talking about, these Cepheid variables, those are the ones that Edwin Hubble used to figure out how big the universe was and to find out that it was expanding, the expanding universe. Hubble of the Hubble Space Telescope? Hubble of the, yes, although he never got to use the Hubble Space Telescope, but that's right. So he was using the Cepheid variables, you know, to measure the distances in the universe. And Tony Z says, hey, they may have another use. Maybe they can be used for communication. Fabulous. So it's really been a star-studded show. It has been star-studded. And indeed, you know, just for your star-studying pleasure, the number of stars... You can see tonight, if you live in a clear location in the night skies, maybe a thousand, something like that. But in the Milky Way, a couple of hundred billion. You're missing out. Thanks to our stellar production team starring Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, financial support from Google, Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Stellar Job. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes. To access hundreds of episodes of Big Picture Science, be sure to go to our website and look at our archive, bigpicturescience.org. And while you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because you can listen with more frequency, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you have a comment, a criticism, even praise, write us at bigpicturescience@seti.org. And so I spat it out at his feet and said, What is this, Frigionet? It is not Dom Perignon. Now this, this is real champagne, but of course it comes from my own vineyard. Funny that I should mention the south of France, because it was there at Cannes that my film debuted before a packed house.